what does the gospel life look like? What does the gospel life look like? If you visit a Christian bookstore, and believe it or not, a few of them still exist, not many, but a few. If you visit a Christian bookstore or search online amongst best-selling Christian authors, you may find titles like this, The Victorious Christian Life, Your Guide to Spiritual Success, or You Are Stronger Than You Think, Unleash the Power to Go Bigger, Go Bold, and Go Beyond What Limits You, or this title, Instinct, The Power to Unleash Your Inborn Drive. Or lastly, the abundance mindset. Success starts here. Friends, all of those titles are written by prominent New York Times best-selling Christian authors and pastors. And the implications right, are clear. We hear those titles, what do we think? Well, we think the Christian life is what? We think it's the victorious life. We think the Christian life, hearing those titles, is the abundant life. It is a life of success, even a life of status, maybe even stardom. If you hear testimonials, right, from Kanye or from Justin Bieber, often the language isn't as overt as some of those titles suggest, and yet the, the message in our own language is still similar. So we'll talk about the gospel life as what? Well. We talk about it as the purpose-driven life. It's the life that replaces despair with our destiny. The life that fills, uh, the gospel that fills our life, rather, with meaning and with hope. The implication, right, the picture that we form in our minds in the midst of all this is that the gospel life is the good life. The gospel life is the blessed life, underscored even by Instagram places like what? Preachers and sneakers, right? Do you know it? Maybe you're familiar with it. Friend, I wonder what is your notion this morning? I wonder what is your notion of the gospel life? Now, maybe it's not the designer life, like preachers and their designer sneakers, but Maybe you think of the gospel life as a life of satisfaction, a life of fulfillment, maybe in career and in the home. After all, doesn't Proverbs 16.3 promise us that we're to commit our plans to the Lord and whatever we do, plans will succeed. Friend, how would you define the gospel life? That is going to be the topic, really, of this 11-week study that we're beginning this morning in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. So I want to invite you to turn there now to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seat back there before you, I forgot to look it up. Someone want to tell me what page 2 Corinthians is on? 962. 962. You can find 942? 964, all right. <laughs> there we go, third try. 964, thank you. So as you turn to page 964, 2 Corinthians, uh, Corinth was the mighty and wealthy Greek city-state, and it was sacked by the Romans in about 146 B.C. And in Corinth, 
that city remained uninhabited for about 100 years until around 44 BC, the new Roman emperor, Julius Caesar, decided to rebuild and resettle Corinth. And he did it to enterprising young Romans. So they resettled folks from Rome there in Corinth. And so if Rome represented old money, well, Corinth was new money. Corinth offered upward mobility. It offered opportunity for the ambitious. So you can think of Corinth a little bit like a 19th century boomtown out on the American West, right? Growing, prospering, and it would become the most important city soon in Greece. Now, if you know Acts 18, you'll know that Paul visited Corinth in around 49 to 50 AD, and he preached there in the synagogue, and he met a good bit of opposition, and yet the Lord gave Paul a vision that he had many people in that city, and so implored Paul to stay there and to keep preaching in Corinth, and so Paul did. For about 18 months, they saw many people saved, planted a church there in Corinth. But Paul actually wrote not two letters to the Corinthians, he actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. There's a first letter that we actually possess that warned the Corinthians not to associate with immoral brothers and sisters. So you hear that reference in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. And the second letter that Paul actually wrote to them is the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, where we read in 1 Corinthians how that church is really confronted by a host of problems. There is immorality, there is worldliness, there is division, there is drunkenness, there is selfishness. As we noted when we studied that book maybe five years or so ago, the problem was not that there was a church in Corinth, right? The problem was there was too much of Corinth in the church. And that was the challenge that church faced. And Paul in 1 Corinthians will give some pretty strong rebukes to some of the practices there, to some of the individuals. And those rebukes weren't well received by all. They indeed sparked resentment by some within that community. And in Paul's next visit to Corinth, some of those rose up against Paul. And aided by these false teachers that Paul refers to as super apostles, later in 2 Corinthians, these individuals, well, they sought to undermine Paul. They maligned Paul to his face. And in one of those visits, it appears no one came to Paul's defense. And so he'll leave one of those visits to Corinth and when he's back in Ephesus, he'll write what's referred to in 2 Corinthians as a severe letter, a very strong letter, which again, we don't possess that letter. It's merely mentioned in 2 Corinthians. And it seems that that severe letter had some of the effect that Paul desired. And after leaving and writing that severe letter and hearing word of how the Corinthians responded, we actually get this fourth letter which we call 2 Corinthians. And it's a letter that Paul writes remarkably to the church, and he particularly confronts many of those who are maligning him and who were undermining him. You know, if we were confronted with the kind of insults that Paul was confronted with, if we were in his shoes, you know, we might be tempted to sue for defamation of character. But in 2 Corinthians, we see Paul, he doesn't do that. Paul writes them a letter. He writes them a letter. And if you have ever invested yourself in someone, given hours, days, years into someone, invested yourself in them, ever to have those people 
maybe turn away from you, maybe even turn away from the faith. 2 Corinthians, I think, is a book you'll relate to. 2 Corinthians is really a book for you. It's perhaps the most polemical and the most personal of all Paul's writings. We're going to see, maybe unlike any other book of Paul's, how Paul really bears his heart. He unloads his heart upon these Corinthians. And in doing so, he's not only going to help us understand and really reveal the nature of, of gospel ministry, but what is the nature of a true gospel life? So with that, let's, let's look there, 2 Corinthians verse 1, and let's read verses 1 through 7. Follow along as I read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. All right, so right there, verses 1 to 2, we have a pretty standard greeting of Paul. And then in verses 3 to 7, we have this blessing, which is interesting because Paul doesn't in this letter begin with his standard thanksgiving, right? So in 1 Corinthians, that's how he begins his standard thanksgiving. This is the only letter where he begins with a blessing like this and entirely leaves off the thanksgiving, Instead of highlighting, as God typically does, what the, uh, as Paul typically does, what, what the Lord is doing through the recipients of his letter, instead of highlighting God's work in them, instead, Paul turns their attention actually to God's work in him and what God is doing through Paul. So to be clear in, in verses, really in verse 3, that we there in verse 3, that can throw us, that we actually refers to Paul. Maybe Paul and Timothy. It does not refer to Paul and to the Corinthians. And we know that in part because in verse 6, Paul will say, if we, referring to Paul, are afflicted, it is for your, as in the Corinthians' comfort and salvation. Or verse 7, our hope, that our there, again referring to Paul, for you, Corinthians is unshaken. So that we is sometimes called the apostolic we, that we and our, that's referring to Paul. The you, the your, that's referring to the Corinthians. So Paul's really turning our attention at the outset to himself and God's own work in his life. And as Paul really leads out with God's work of affliction and suffering in his life, 
we're learning something about what divided Paul from this Corinthian church. And in doing so, Paul is already giving us an introduction to the gospel life. And the simple point, I think the main idea here in these verses, is that God comforts us in our suffering so that we can be of comfort to others. I think that's the pretty plain and simple main idea of these verses. God comforts us in our suffering so that we can be of comfort to others. That's basically what verse 4 says. I think verse 4 is the the main idea. And then he's going to ground that statement, that main idea, in verse 5. And the fact that our sufferings and comfort come to us from being united to Christ. And then in verse 6, he's going to elaborate a little bit more on what he means by our comfort being for the comfort of others. And then he's going to include in that this notion of endurance. And then he's going to follow in that statement, that concluding statement really in verse 7. And I think Paul is hoping in all of this that we'll see two things. They're going to serve as our two points this morning. First, that our sufferings confirm our faith. Our sufferings confirm our faith. And then the second thing he wants us to see, I believe, is that our suffering comforts others in the faith. Our sufferings comfort others in the faith. So just take first, our sufferings confirm our faith. Our sufferings confirm our faith. Now I make that statement, and if you're listening carefully, some of you are thinking, now wait, no, right? That's not what we expect. We don't expect sufferings to be the confirmation of our faith. When we suffer, what do we often think? We think what? We think, where did I go wrong? Our assumption in our sufferings is that this isn't part of the plan. We assume in our sufferings that something is happening that isn't supposed to happen. Maybe we think we failed in some way. Maybe we think God has failed us in some way. Maybe we think the faith, right, our Christian faith has failed us. Friends, is that not what Job's friends assumed when they witnessed Job's sufferings, right? They assumed Job had failed God in some way. Or Job's wife, right? What did she say? She said to Job, basically, curse God and die, as in God has failed you, Job. God has failed you. Suffering, we assume, shouldn't be our lot, right? Suffering, we don't think of that as as God's plan A for our lives. And that kind of suffering, we would say, certainly shouldn't be for spiritual people. For really spiritual people, they shouldn't undergo that kind of suffering. And friends, that kind of thinking that often marks us, that marked the world that Paul lived in and the world that the Corinthians lived in. The Greco-Roman world approached religion in a very utilitarian way. What I mean by that is they would give their service to the gods and expect that that should profit them in some way. Right? If I give my service to the gods, then I should get something in return. I should get something back. And friends, many still today assume that's exactly how religion works. Right? I give myself to some deity and I get something in return. Which is why Paul's life makes no sense 
You cannot make sense of Paul's life if that's how you understand religion. Because here was a man whose life was marked by suffering. Suffering followed him around like a black storm cloud, right? He suffered what? He suffered cold. He suffered nakedness. He suffered beatings. He suffered imprisonments, multiple imprisonments, assaults, and stonings. He said he was shipwrecked not once, not twice, but three times in the course of his life. He was adrift at sea, and he finally makes land, and what? He gets bit by a viper, right? I mean, the guy's life was just filled with all kinds of suffering. He was deserted. He was betrayed. I could just keep going on and on. Paul was just like a walking caution sign that screamed, get back, stay away. His life, he says, was a kind of perpetual death. 2 Corinthians 4.11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That was Paul's own testimony. And friends, all of this as an apostle, that's who Paul was. He was an apostle. Surely someone of Paul's rank and stature should know something of the victorious Christian life. See, for the Corinthians, Paul's afflictions... Well, that casts doubt on the authority of his work and on the authenticity of his message. His afflictions, the severity of them, right? It casts doubts on the authority of his work and on the authenticity of his message, which is perhaps why Paul opens as he does in verse 1. And he reminds them of his apostolic authority, right? Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and then notice what he says, by the will of God. So after Paul left Corinth and planted that church, we know that there were some some men who came, false teachers, that he calls, Paul calls super apostles, who preached, we read in 2 Corinthians 11, they preached a different gospel. And Paul is saying, in light of those men who are leading many astray in Corinth, Paul's saying, listen, I'm not like them. I'm not some self-anointed, self-appointed, counterfeit apostle. Paul's saying, I was chosen by God. The risen Christ appeared to me and saved me and commissioned me. I didn't choose him. No, he chose me. That's what Paul's saying right at the outset. And if you, they would likely have known that experience of Paul's on the Damascus Road. No doubt Paul would have shared that with him. And this may have just been a little clue, a little, a little reminder, a subtle reminder Paul's giving to them. Because if you remember Jesus' words to Ananias in, in Acts 9, Jesus says to him, he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him, referring to Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer, right? Suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's reminding them that adversity and his own adversity is actually an an authentic mark of his apostolic ministry. All of his adversity, Paul's saying, right? That itself is an authentic mark of my apostolic ministry and authority. 
That's, Paul says, who he is. He's reminding them at the outset. And he's also going to remind them in Corinth who they are, right? They are the church, verse 1. Now, church there doesn't just mean a sacred, uh, a sacred building. Church doesn't just mean religious institution. We have different associations in our mind when we hear that word church. No, it's not that. It's, it means an assembly. Church means those who physically gather, not like in some metaverse, right? As some, believe it or not, are trying to do. Not that. Actually physically gather in time and space, Paul says, for them at Corinth. But they're not just the church at Corinth. They're the what? They're the church of God at Corinth. They're the church of God at Corinth. They're not finally Paul's church. They're not David Platt's church or John Piper's church. They're no pastor's church. They are the church of God, God's church. And as such, Paul describes them as saints. And if you're unfamiliar with that word, saints does not mean that they were especially pious or especially devout or especially heroic or they were canonized in some Roman Catholic sense of the word. In fact, when we read through 1 Corinthians, we know they are far more proud than they are pious, right? They're a whole lot more decadent. Uh, as individuals, then they are devout in their walk with the Lord. But they are God's people, and they are set apart to be holy because, as Paul wrote back in 1 Corinthians 6, they were those who were bought with a price. So Paul's reminding them of who he is. He's reminding at the outset of who they are, those who profess to call God as their Father and Jesus as their Lord, which means that Paul's afflictions shouldn't come as a great shock to them. So notice in verse 4 how Paul speaks of afflictions in such a matter-of-fact way. Just speaks of it as plainly as if it should be expected. He's not surprised by his afflictions. Paul's not undone by his afflictions. Nor is he surprised that other Christians suffer affliction. And why is that? Well, it's because the afflictions Paul faces are part of how he shares in the sufferings that Christ faced. So that's the connection. The, the afflictions that Paul faces are part of how he shares in the sufferings that Christ himself faced. That's what he's highlighting in, in verse 5 right there. When he notes, Paul does, how he shares abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Now, when Paul says that, Paul is not saying that he shares abundantly in Christ's atoning sufferings, in that atoning work, right? Christ alone on the cross suffered uniquely and distinctly in our place to reconcile us to God. And he alone could do that as the sinless Son of God. That's not the kind of suffering Paul says he shares with Christ. No, these are the kinds of sufferings Paul shares as a consequence of following Christ, as a consequence of his walk with Christ. So Romans 8.17 refers to those who share in Christ's sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Or if you know Philippians 3.10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, Paul will write. So Paul's highlighting a solidarity, a connection between a follower of Christ and Christ himself. And Jesus himself made that connection. 
So he will say, Jesus will, whatever you did not do to the least of these disciples, you did not do to me, Jesus. The connection between Jesus and his people. Or what he said to Paul, right there on the Damascus Road, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, Paul is persecuting God's people, and Jesus identifies so closely with them. He says, why are you persecuting me, Christ's people? So when we're united to Christ, Paul's saying we're united to him, and we're united to him in his sufferings. And that, Paul says right there, that is the gospel way. Suffering before glory, right? The, the cross before the crown. That is the gospel way. Paul's detractors, though, what are they saying? They're like, well, listen, no, that's, that way doesn't make sense to us. That doesn't meet our logic. It doesn't work the way we think religion ought to work, right? If Paul is truly an apostle, man, why does the guy appear so weak? Why is his preaching so pedestrian? Why doesn't Paul enthrall us more of those miraculous stories and work? Why does he have to keep changing his itinerary? Is he that confused? Is his God that confused? And most importantly, Paul, why in the world do you suffer like you do? Right? The Corinthians aren't content with the scandal of the cross. Right? A religion that talks about resurrection power and glory Right, a religion like that, what should that do? It should confer right, resurrection, power, and glory, not suffering and shame. Religion, what do we hear people say, right? Religion should lift people up, not weigh them down with suffering. Friend, I wonder if you're ever, te ever tempted to think that way, right? It should lift you up, not weigh you down with suffering. Paul says, you know what? I'm going to turn all of that on its head. I'm going to flip it upside down. Not only, Paul says, does my suffering not contradict my message, he says, no, it confirms my message. And he's going to go even further to say in verse 6, that the very thing, these sufferings for which you deride me, are actually your deliverance, he says. They are for your comfort and for your salvation. Paul's saying, listen, without my sufferings there in Corinth, the gospel would have never come to you. If I had believed in a theology of glory like you all, when persecution arose, I would have either abandoned the message or I would have abandoned you. I would not have stayed and suffered for you. And that's Paul's point. That affliction is not alien to the Christian life. Affliction is the mark of an authentic Christian life. That's what he's trying to help them see. That's the message we need to be reminded of, that affliction is not alien to the Christian life. No, affliction is the mark, actually, of an authentic Christian life. Friend, I wonder if you are a Christian here this morning, if you need to be reminded of that very same message. Because we would like to think that in becoming Christians, God has promised us this like no-fly zone, when it comes to suffering in our lives. We'd like to think that. He's put a no-fly zone over suffering in our lives. Or we might be tempted to think that and read sort of God's favor or his disfavor by assessing how comfortable or how uncomfortable our life is. 
But Paul's saying, you know what? That kind of thinking has the math all wrong. You're thinking like the culture. You're not thinking like your Savior. You have forgotten Jesus' words in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have glory and success. That's not what it says. In this world, you will have trouble, tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, of course, there is a kind of suffering that we all face as a consequence of our own foolishness. Right? There is that kind of suffering. I don't think that's exactly the kind of suffering Paul's talking about here. There is also a kind of suffering that we bear explicitly for being a Christian. Maybe it's persecution at work or at school when you attempt to share the gospel with someone, right? And there's yeah, you get negative outcomes, bad consequences, hatred, whatever might happen, right? There's a direct kind of persecution that can come from walking with Christ, you know, there's also a much broader general affliction we face that's not necessarily tied to a specific sin, nor does it seem obviously tied to some, something in our walk with Christ, right? Because we are a Christian, this, this thing has happened, there's, there's those, but there's also this large bit in the middle, like even physical suffering. So Paul will say, Later in 2 Corinthians 12, he will lament this thorn in his flesh, some physical trial. And notice for Paul, Paul recognizes that that physical trial is not in any way divorced from his own discipleship with Jesus. And he's going to go on to say, Christ's power in that, in that trial, Christ's power is made perfect in my weakness, Paul says. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christian suffering is that soil in which God loves to work. The furnace of affliction is where God most shapes us and where he molds us. Right? As one author has said, afflictions have a way of exposing illusory hopes invested in imaginary gods. Let's say that again. Afflictions have a way of exposing illusory hopes invested in imaginary gods. And friends, this gets to the very heart of the gospel life, where Christ's power and Christ's glory are witnessed not in our own strength, but in our suffering and in our own weakness. And we don't like it that way. right? It hurts more that way. And we struggle to understand why it has to be that way. right? When I am weak, then I am strong. Oh friend, I've thought about these words this week. I know what those words say. When I am weak, then I am strong. I know what they say. I rarely know what they mean. Every now and then I get a glimpse, and I think I know what that means, that when I'm weak, I'm strong. And then as soon as I think I've got it, I've lost it, and I don't have it. Because when I am weak, I feel weak. When I am weak, I feel weak. I don't feel strong. I feel weak. 
When my body doesn't do what I want it to do, when my own mind can't recall anymore when I want it to recall, when I can't seem to bring about the change I want or the health results or the life results that I want, I don't say in that moment when I can bring nothing about, oh God, I praise you for my weakness. No, I get angry at God. I get frustrated with God that I lack what I want. And I'm not getting what I want. And in that moment, I can't say, I praise you for my weakness. And in that, I am strong, I am weak, and I'm angry, and I'm frustrated. I don't want it that way. None of us do. But that's the way God would have it. Suffering. Affliction. Affliction is kind of like the acid. That helpfully, though it hurts, erodes and really eats away at all of our counterfeit faith. That's what affliction does for us. It's right, it's that chisel that knocks off the sculpture everything that doesn't belong there. It's that, you know, sandpaper that smooths off all the, the rough, sharp, sinful edges of our souls. And friends, what Paul's helping us see is our pain is never purposeless in Christ. Afflictions, well, they never come as an accident to us. You know, it's in our suffering that God most powerfully meets us, that he molds us, that he makes us most like him. It's not the way we would do it. But it is, Paul says, the gospel way. So notice Paul first has to trouble the comforted. The Corinthians are plenty comforted. You and I are often plenty comforted. Paul first must trouble the comforted before he can turn then to comfort the troubled, right? Because not only does our suffering and the sufferings of Christ in us, not only do those and are they meant to confirm our faith, but secondly, what I want us to see is those sufferings are meant to comfort others in the faith. Those sufferings are meant to comfort others in the faith. Okay, well, how does that work? Well, by first recognizing where genuine comfort actually comes from. And we often think, I like to think that comfort comes in having the answer. So if I want to be comforted, I want to know why, right? I want answers. Why do our kids get sick and suffer? Why are jobs lost? Why are marriages abandoned? Why do friends desert us? Why didn't we get into this school or get that scholarship? Or why don't we have that relationship? We want answers to questions like that. And just once we think, God, it would be really nice if you actually give me an answer. Just one time an answer, or at least just give me what I wanted. Make life work out exactly as I wanted. Why does it always have to be so complicated? And why does it have to be so hard? The reality is, if you're asking questions like that, as I often do, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. I don't have the answers. And interestingly, Paul isn't trying to give a whole bunch of answers right here. It's as if Paul knows, listen, those things that most burden and weigh on you, if God even gave you an answer, you wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't know what to do with it. You wouldn't be able to make any sense of it. And it would, in that, provide no comfort and no help to you. Which is why instead, Paul doesn't give us answers, 
But what does he do? He immediately turns us to the God who has all the answers. And that's where he turns us to. That's where actually he begins in verse 3. Right, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And who is this God and Father? He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Father of mercies. Nowhere else in the New Testament is that expression used. And it's used of God. And yet, though it's not used like that, this notion of God as merciful, or as other translations may put it, as compassionate, that is all over the scriptures. Gracious and compassionate. A God, we read, who comforts his people. Notice how just that word comfort bookends verses 3 to 7. It's right there at the beginning in verse 3, or at least toward the end of the verse. It's right there in verse 3. And then it's the last word, I think, right there at verse 11. Those comfort bookends right there. In fact, comfort either in a noun or in a verb form, ten times, just in verses 3 to 7. And even that word comfort, over half the uses in the New Testament are in 2 Corinthians. It is meant to be 2 Corinthians, despite all the hardship that we're going to read about, it is meant to be, and Paul sees it, as a book of tremendous comfort, of gospel comfort. And why is that? Because behind it all is this God of comfort, this God we must know. And of course, the background for this God of comfort, it's what? It's Isaiah, right? Isaiah 40 to 66 that we've sung of and, and already read of this morning. Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. What we read earlier in the service, Isaiah 51, 12, I, the Lord says, I am he who comforts you saying, I am the Lord your God, right? You are my people. Or Isaiah 61, verse 2, God, we read, comforts all those who mourn. Friends, the God of the Bible is not presented to us as the father of judgment and the God of all vengeance. That's not how he's presented and introduced to us. Now, is it true is it true that God is a God of judgment? Well, yes, it is. Is it true that he's a God of vengeance? Yeah, go read the Psalms. He is a God of vengeance. But he is first and foremost the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And friends, the, the, the Greeks didn't have a notion for this. The gods of the Greeks were indifferent to human pain. But Paul's saying, not so the God of the Bible. The Romans... They had no concept for this, that, that the gods of the universe would even be con concerned with what is happening in the lives of, of individuals and affairs of, of men. The, Pliny the Elder says it's a ridiculous notion that the gods of the universe would be concerned with the affairs of men. No way! Paul says, yes, the God of the Bible is. Naturalists today, right? You take a materialist. They'll have no concept of a compassionate, comforting God. I mean, look at nature. You understand why? Nature is violent, right? Volcanoes in the Pacific, tornadoes. Nature is violent. The fight for survival, right? You just turn on National Geographic and watch what happens in the fight for survival. It is bloody. It is messy. It is ruthless. It is unforgiving. But friend, not so. Paul says the God of the Bible. Isaiah 66, 14. As a mother comforts her child, so will I, the Lord says, comfort you. My Christian friend, 
our comfort in this life must always be rooted in the character of God. It starts there. And often it finishes right there in the character of God. And that's right where Paul begins in verse 3. Not in our circumstances. Our comfort's not there. Our circumstances will lie. They will deceive. Of course, they will change. But not God's character. Right? That's fixed. That's immovable. That's unchangeable. God being ever gracious toward his children. It's why we can sing as we did earlier. I love that old hymn that's been put to some new, new music. Whatever my God ordains is right. That first or that third stanza, it's a wonderful stanza. The whole thing is excellent. But that third stanza, whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Running right there to the character of God. My God is true each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Friends, that's the gracious character held out to us in our God through his son, Jesus Christ. So notice for Paul, the compassion of God can only be known through his son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. To reject this Jesus is to actually reject God in his greatest act of compassion towards humanity. So if you've come here and you're hearing all these wonderful things I've had to say about the compassion of God, recognize the compassion of God you most need so that you might avoid the wrath of God one day in your sins is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the compassion of God held out to you in the gospel. That Jesus Christ, though himself, he had no sins for which he deserved to die, he willingly died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners and then rose from the grave as proof that God had accepted that sacrifice, rose from the grave, ascended into the heaven such that any who see their need and their sin and repent of their sin and trust in this Jesus can be reconciled to God and know this God of comfort. That's the gospel. That's the basic message that Christians hold out. That's what Paul held out to these Corinthians. If you have not believed that message, that you can be reconciled to God in your sin, pray that you would repent and believe today. And yet the promise of is that those who know this God, right, who know this God in Christ, right, he, verse 4, comforts us in our affliction. But then we have to ask, with what kind of comfort does God comfort us? And here's where we got to be careful, because we often define comfort how, right? Comfort's what? It's the absence of hardship, maybe. Comfort is the absence of pain, you know, as a society, we are increasingly bowing before the altar of comfort. We love our comfort. We like our comfort uh, food. We like our comfort clothes, right? Leisure wear, right? COVID, leisure wear is killing it, right? We like our comfort. We like the comfort of our home where we can shop. Many would prefer even to worship in the comfort of their home, lounging on a couch, right, while they watch a screen, 
That's not indicting anyone who could not make it here today. I'll leave that to your conscience. No, I'm kidding. No, it is not. But it is to say that like, we like our comfort. We like when things are easy. We like when things don't hurt. We're comfort addicts, and we don't like to be inconvenienced. Right? We demand what? Safe places, safe spaces, all of that. All of that is a form of the comfort we think we must have and how we define our own comfort. But friends, that begs the question, is that the kind of comfort, all that I just described that God promises, is the kind of comfort God promises, is that found when we bury our head in another pint of Ben and Jerry's or in another few pints of beer? Is that comfort? Is it the comfort of binging on food or sex or entertainment or stuff? Is comfort found just in feeding the flesh or it is in the absence of pain? Again, is that the comfort God promises? Well, no. The comfort he promises is not the absence of difficulty, but it is his presence with us in the midst of those difficulties. It's his presence with us through his word. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's uh, Psalm 119, but one of my favorite verses in the psalms is Psalm 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Right? It's God's presence with us in the midst of prayer. It's God's presence with us as we fellowship with other believers. So it's always a temptation. It's always a temptation. Whether we run to addiction right, or isolation, that's the temptation. In our suffering, we run to isolation. We just hole off and hole away or we just binge and gorge and we run after addictions. That's the temptation in the midst of suffering. But Paul says that is not a solution to our own suffering. And particularly, Paul places his focus, and he said God comforts us, verse 4, so that, why are we comforted? Here's the reason, verse 4, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So Paul's subtly saying, hey, listen, you Corinthians that think all this affliction, right, speaks against my apostolic authority, recognize this affliction is for you. It's for you. You mock me for the very thing you most need, the comfort I can give to you, Paul says. So our comfort Right? It's never simply for our enjoyment. Right? God's comforted me. Great. Glad I feel better. Glad my spirit's encouraged. Glad my smiles return. Glad there's a skip to my step again. I'm now going to get on with life. That's not why we're comforted. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Right? We're comforted not to be comfortable but to be comforters. So members of UBC, how often do you share the comfort that God has brought you with other members of the spiritual family? In the midst of a great trial, when God has comforted you in that trial, you know, maybe the trial, maybe it still persists, but you've gotten something better in the midst of that trial, right? How often do you share that comfort with others? We're meant to be conduits of comfort, Paul says. And of course, this presumes we're seeking our comfort in God, 
Otherwise, we're not pursuing it in God. I mean, what comfort do we have to share? Right? I'll give you a bottle. I'll give you a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Like, is that the best we have to offer? All we have are the passing pleasures of this life. Well, hopefully not. Notice Paul's logic, verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Now, Paul doesn't mean there that his affliction has paid the penalty of their sins. He doesn't speak of it like that. Right? The Bible can speak of salvation as something in the past. Right? We, you know, for by grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2.8. Right? You can speak of it like that. It can speak of what's being accomplished in the present. For the gospel you heard preached and received is the gospel by which you are being saved, present tense, 1 Corinthians 15.2. It can be spoken of in terms of what God will do in the future. Having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him. Romans 5, 9. But Paul is trying to help us see, and he's drilling it into the Corinthian heads, our afflictions are not finally about us. That's what we miss. They're not about us. Paul's saying, my afflictions, you're making it all about me. It's actually not about me. We make them about us because guess what? We're all narcissists. We all make life about us, everything about us, everything about me. And you know what? Some of that's understandable because our suffering feels very personal. It does. But Paul's saying these afflictions aren't fundamentally about him, but they're for them, for the Corinthians. So friend, when you suffer, what is the first thing you are tempted to ask? Right? We already thought about why maybe, why is this happening According to the Bible, that's really not the first question we should be asking. As we've seen, even if we're given an answer, right? It may not help us much. I was taught as a young Christian, don't ask why, ask what. As in, ask, what does God want to teach me in this? And that's not wrong, but it's not quite there. First, Paul says, ask who? That's the first question we have to ask, right? Before you ask the what of your trials, you need to know the who, the God of mercy and compassion behind your trials. And if you need to be reminded of that, just go read Job, because that's what God says to Job. Job gets so fed up and demands answers, and God says, you don't need to know why, you just need to know who. If you knew who, you wouldn't need to know why. That's Job. But once we know who, the next question Paul asks isn't, what does God want to teach me in this? Though it's a fine question, Paul's, Paul's saying we should be asking a different question. In this suffering, how does God want me to use this in the life of another? That's the question next Paul pushes us to. From the who to the how. How does God want to use this in the life of another? How does God intend to use the comfort I've received in my trial in order to be a comfort for others. So friend, just ask yourself, what trials have you faced? They can be significant ones. The loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, discouragement in a career, frustration, you know, seeing maybe lack of fruit in your own evangelism. Maybe it's a nagging physical ailment. Maybe it's just dark days of a dark soul, recognize God means the comfort that you've received 
from Christ, he means that to be passed on. He means that to be shared because he understands others need it. And part of the reason God has comforted you is so that you could then share it with others. It is one of the reasons why church community is so central and critical to the Christian life. Friends, it's one of the reasons we need older saints in our lives. We need older saints in our lives. You know, our culture prizes youth. It's one of the very strange things about our culture. No cultures before us have ever prized youth like we do. I think it actually explains a lot about us, not always positively. We prize youth, but friends, rarely do the young have the maturity, the years of life, the years of experience, and the suffering and the sorrow with which true gospel comfort is formed and found. Rarely do they have it. That doesn't mean you need to be old to provide comfort. I mean, you could be a high schooler. You could be in your junior and senior year. You've had a really rough few years. You could meet a freshman struggling, and there's a lot of comfort you could likely bring. And that would be great comfort. But it is to say there are simply some lessons that age and experience uniquely teach. So think of a particular trial that you've been through. And think of the comfort that God has brought to you. And maybe seek to identify one of those this week. Maybe just identify one this afternoon. A particular trial with a particular comfort. And then ask yourself, who could I share this with? Who might need to hear this comfort from me? You know, maybe it's in a life group tonight to think through that. Seek to share that trial and the comfort God has brought so that another might be comforted in their trial. That is exactly how God means to encourage us in the faith. And that was part of the point behind Paul's afflictions that these Corinthians hadn't even begun to understand. You know, when we become Christians, we all enroll in the school of suffering. And if you didn't know that, I'm sorry to break the news to you. But we do. Every one of us enrolls in the school of suffering. We forget it. We want to reject it. It's what the Corinthians rejected, right? They're about the good life. They're about the victorious gospel life, right? The stuff that we love to post on Instagram. They had little place for theology of the cross and for a life of suffering, and yet Paul's helping them and therefore us see that affliction is not alien to the Christian life, but it is a mark of an authentic Christian life. Our sufferings, they not only unite us to Christ, but they confirm us and they're meant to actually confirm us in our faith as we share in those sufferings with Christ and they are given to us in order that we also might comfort others in their faith. So friend, I asked you, what's your notion of the gospel life? Will it look like this? Let's pray. God, we pray and we thank you for your word. We are grateful for the ways in which perhaps even this morning it is revealed how we often think a whole lot more like the world and a whole lot less like your word. That we resent the trials and the sufferings that have come upon us. And we don't pretend they're easy. 
And yet, God, we also don't want to pretend that they've come from a malicious hand or they've come by some accident. Whatever my God ordains is right. And we pray that we would not only come to believe that as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, but as we might be those who increasingly comfort others with which the comfort we ourselves have received from you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.